Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, May 22, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this talk, presidential historian Douglas Brinkley discusses how different administrations have fought to protect the country's natural treasures. Well, good evening. It's um, wonderful to be back here and getting to honor the Hudson River Valley celebration. I'm going to be spending my month of June at Hyde Park, New York, right uh, at the FDR home, and uh, so I'll be back. Yeah, well, yeah, I'll be I'll be back at the um, at the Hudson River and uh, Marist and Vassar and all. I go up there some in the summers. Um, this book, I've been writing a series of environmental history, and tonight they asked me to talk on the two Roosevelts and conservation. And it really, my journey into this began as a boy. My mother and father were teachers, and we had a station wagon and a coachman trailer, and we would spend about two months in the summer traveling around America. And wherever I went to national parks, state parks, national monuments, national forest, I'd grab those brochures and somewhere or somehow either TR or FDR had something to do with saving it. And I particularly uh, became enchanted with the Badlands of North Dakota, um, where Theodore Roosevelt spent his uh, so-called Wild West days in the town of Medora, and it's Theodore Roosevelt National Park there. And the reason I like Medora is I had asthma as a kid, and Theodore Roosevelt had asthma. And when you um, have asthma, that air from the Arctic coming down in the summers is such clean and fresh air. And uh, so I started more and more identifying with TR, and uh, I wrote a book called The Wilderness Warrior about him. And, of course, he's born here in 1858 in New York City, that year for Theodore Roosevelt's essential to know because it tells you in a few years we would have the Civil War. He was in a unique position that his mother was from Georgia and was for the Confederacy, and his father was a New York Knickerbocker, obviously for for the Union Army and Abraham Lincoln, and they both were rigid in their views. So his childhood, they would have these extraordinarily heated dinner conversations, and uh, T.R. said why they argued, I fell in love with the West. Um, and he, and he, at an extremely early age, he started getting interested in natural history. He would go to Central Park, which used to have a, used to be much wilder, and would collect birds' nests and started his own little uh, natural history museum. His father was one of the founders across the street here of the American Museum of Natural History, kind of the conceptualizer of it, really, and fundraiser for getting that open. And the idea of that museum is, was to beat the British Museum in our natural history collections. Um, and so Theodore Roosevelt is lucky in the sense that as a youngster, he knew what he wanted to be, and that was a naturalist, an outdoor adventurer, um, a, a person who uh, perhaps a professional ornithologist. 
And he ends up um, at a very early age um, get, being able to identify all the bird species of North America. And it becomes this um, such a diehard passion that he, he basically tells his father early on that I'm going to go to Harvard and major in what today we would call wildlife biology. And he did. And as an undergrad at Harvard, he writes his first book. And that first book was called The Summer Birds of the Adirondacks. And that imagine writing a book as an undergraduate. It's an exact description of bird life in the Adirondacks. And that was where his spiritual zone is. You know, Henry David Thoreau used to have write about Walden Pond as being his spiritual place. And I, I can ask everybody in the audience, what's your Walden? What wild place has spoken to you the most in your life? If Theodore Roosevelt, the Adirondacks were just his his um, magical place, and hence he wrote the first book there. But he used to make uh, the outdoors, being in the woods, he would feel better, and the asthma from Manhattan would escape him. And he started believing that nature was a curative. Um, this is not fully proven in science. There are all sorts of, of books about blue mind, that you're happier if you're near a waterway and things like this. And Theodore Rosa kind of fell under that uh, a stout belief. Uh, and then he questioned some of the problems of having only urban life and the growing, um, uh, uh, drifting from rural America to urban America. But also when he was at Harvard, um, he, following in the footsteps of Henry David Thoreau, Theodore Roosevelt went up to Maine and went looking to hunt a moose. And he went and if, uh, Thoreau wrote a book on the Maine woods. T.R. followed the exact ways that Thoreau had went. So Thoreau was one of his big heroes. But another one, and the key one, is Charles Darwin. Because if he's born in 1858, Theodore Roosevelt, in 1859, Darwin uh, comes out with On the Origins of Species. And it was an electrifying book. Uh, during the Civil War, people were not arguing over um, you know, the, the findings of natural selection and, and the like. But they were in, in the Roosevelt household because not only was his father building the American Museum of Natural History or was it into the natural history world, but his uncle Robert Barnwell Roosevelt was considered the John James Audubon of the um, era. His, the future president's uncle Rob, his, his father's brother, wrote Darwinian books about frogs and eels. He wrote a book about Lake Superior. He wrote a book on the waterfowl of Florida. And more than, importantly to young T.R., his uncle Rob had a menagerie of animals. Usually would have at any time with him in his brownstone here in New York, you know, dozens of creatures running around, including uh, animals with, on the dinner table. And, um, you know, it was quite exotic. And T.R. Was, loved that Dr. Doolittle-like style of his Uncle Rob. Um, and so there are all these various influences. And when I said the West, even while he's at Harvard and even the interest in the Adirondacks, his greatest open, eye-opening travels, his parents had taken Theodore Roosevelt all over Europe. But when he went to the Alps, he said, where's the wildlife? They shot it all out. He would go, go places and felt that Europe had not maintained its wilderness. 
And he took his trip as a Harvard undergraduate, not just to Maine, but then out to Carroll County, Iowa, the westernmost part, to go grouse hunting. He then was in the Red River Valley of North Dakota and Minnesota. He read the great um, Francis Parkman's on the Oregon Trail. He would wrap himself in a buffalo robe at night and just basked in um, the western glory of our Great Plains. And so this interest in the West is quite keen. T.R., though, after graduating from Harvard, he becomes a state legislator here in New York. He fights early on hard for what we'll call conservation of, of, of regulating pollution in uh, the state of New York, an early pioneer on it, on bird laws and the like. But he was at a rostrum in Albany when a messenger ran a Western Union telegram to him And it was from his brother, and his brother said, basically, Theodore, get into New York City. You know, uh, mother in high fever, and your wife Alice is giving childbirth. Um, That's a double whammy of sickness. He got on the train from Albany to New York. It was a Valentine's Day. He went down to the, where's the TR birthplace of today. You can go visit it by the National Park Service and he shuttled between his his mom had Bright's disease and his with a failure of the kidney and his um, wife was giving childbirth to Alice Longworth Roosevelt. And that night he'd go from floor to floor. Both were burning up in fever and both died. They died the same month or I mean the same night. And, you know, historians read other people's leavings for a living. And one of the most dramatic I've ever encountered is Theodore Roosevelt putting a giant X in his diary saying the light has gone out of my life forever. His wife and mother were buried on Wall Street at the cemetery on a blustery winter day. And he fell into a deep funk in depression. And it was his sister who said, Theodore, get out of New York. Go west. You're all, we were most happy when you were out in Iowa and Minnesota. Go west. And so he took the Northern Pacific Railroad with just a bag and a rifle and some of his books, including Darwin. And he got off where the train tracks just dropped him off in Medora, North Dakota, in the Badlands as the end of the line. And he ended up spending what he calls his... Um, he um, ends up living and spending what he calls his um, years in the. Oh, somebody's got a thing. Um, he calls it the years, his wilderness years, and he ends up having a a Elkhorn Ranch brand, a, um, a Maltese Cross brand. He ends up raising cattle, but he writes three books about the Dakota territories. One of them illustrated by Frederick Remington. He falls in love with it. If you read today his writings about that particular ecosystem, it's remarkable. The Little Missouri River, the Buffalo, um, the Prairie Dog Towns, etc. But his big moment is he went to hunt a buffalo. There used to be 60 million buffalo thundering across the Great Plains, 60 million. And now we were down to about 2,000 in the United States. Oh, why did the buffalo get decimated? Uh, and when TR went to hunt one with an expensive guide, it took him a week to find one. The buffalo had been slaughtered almost out of existence, first by the U.S. Cavalry and the Army after the Civil War in the um, Indian Wars, as they're called. They would kill off the buffalo to take the subsistence away from um, the native tribes, meaning the food stuff away. 
the railroads hated them because you don't want to run a train into a ton buffalo at night, let alone a herd. And the telegraph company hated them because they would go and scratch their backs on the pole and knock it over. And so they had a bounty on them, and you could just shoot as many as you wanted to exterminate them. And exterminate them we did. TR did get his buffalo. You could see the head is up at Sagamore Hill, his home, on that he shipped home. But he, he got depressed about the death of the bison and created, out of that experience, the American Bison Society and the Boone and Crockett Club. And the Bison Society will, will push for things like the Buffalo Nickel later of saving, bringing back bison. Um, and Boone and Crockett is how to save all the large mammals of, of, um, the, of North America. T.R. gets so into Buffalo, he raises a, his own herd with William Temple Hornaday at the Bronx Zoo, then called New York Zoological Society. Uh, they get a perfect herd eventually. They have very tricky stomachs, bison, for types of grass and the like. And as president, he will send them to Wichita Mountain, Oklahoma, to be the first national game reserve in America, giving the land over to the bison. Um, and they, he did it with the Comanche chief, Quanta Parker, at his side. Native people thought the bison had disappeared down Wichita Mountain when the great slaughter occurred, and that someday that the spirit would come out of the mountain. Today, if you drive in the west, Nebraska, Wyoming, you will see ancestors of the Bronx Zoo herd of Theodore Roosevelt's. Um, so this interest in wildlife and animals continues mightily for T.R., and he be, when he's in, in, in becomes eventually police commissioner here in New York, he's busting the selling of exotic animals all the time. He befriends mammalologists, um, zookeepers, uh, ornithologists. In his day, T.R. is one of the top four or five ornithologists in the world. He, so that he, some people think he had the best ear for birdsong of anybody. He lost an eye in a boxing match, so he was blind in one eye and had a, another bad eye. He was actually a terrible hunter because he had no aim. He had spirit of chase, but he was not a good shot. Um, and you know, his career then goes on to, um, he, he falls into this notion of um, being biophilic, meaning having to be surrounded by animal life. During when he quits as eventually secretary, assistant secretary of the Navy in the Spanish-American War, he gets the Rough Riders together, and they have mascots of a cougar, of a falcon. Um, he, you know, he's collecting species all the time. He's continuing to write about the the outdoors in the West, and lo and behold, that moment there in the Spanish-American War, what he calls his crowded hour. On July 1st, 1898, uh, when he, uh, he'll later get the post, humanously, the Medal of Honor for his service at that point, he comes back to the United States, this incredible hero, the war hero of the Spanish-American War, is in Montauk, Long Island for quarantine alongside his pet cougar and his pet um, falcon. Um, and he ends up deciding to run for governor. Here it is, July 1, 1898. He is in Cuba in the Spanish-American War. August quarantine in Montauk. By September, October, he's running for governor that November as a reformer Republican. He wins. And as an inaugural address, 
he gives this uh, plank about saving of New York State, of protecting the Hudson River Valley, of saving the Adirondacks, the forever wild Adirondacks, of the need for clean water systems, of the Delaware Water Gap, and, and uh, you know, uh, keeping Lake George and the like clean. And it be, he does it with great passion and regulatory zeal. He wants to ban women from wearing um, uh, bird feather, ornamental feathers. He wants it to be you get ticketed and arrested if you shoot um, a robin, say, in your backyard. Um, He's a visionary on bird laws as governor, and he becomes a big thorn on the side of Wall Street because he wants to regulate companies and factories, and the Republican Party does not like him. They want to get him out of the powerful spot of governor of New York, and they offer him the only trick they could, the vice presidency, um, with William McKinley in 1900. And, um, and, and he ends up, as you know, William McKinley gets killed and um, assassinated in Buffalo, New York, and suddenly TR, nobody could find the vice president, He was hiking Mount Marcy, the biggest mountain in the Adirondacks. Um, Papers you can read, Lost in the Wild, Where's the Vice President? Uh, McKinley bleeding, near death, you know. And he ends up um, getting to do a quick hurry up. A a runner finds him on top of the mountain, and they bring him um, to Buffalo, And he's an inaugurated president. If you go to Buffalo today, you can visit the home where McKinley died and the house where Theodore Roosevelt's inaugurated. And the big thing that TR does is from 1901 to 1909, he saves 234 million acres of wild America um, for future um, uh, generations to enjoy. He would give speeches as president and say that Europe has its Louvre and and Westminster Abbey. Uh, We have the Redwoods of California and the Tetons of Wyoming. He would mock European the size of their bears, that our bear, grizzly bears are are bigger than yours. Um, His big interest that he had in the West really manifests itself as president. One of the great geniuses of Theodore Roosevelt is after our Civil War, everybody went west to make money. You went out there to have, um, you know, oil, um, mica, silver, copper, gold, zinc, obestus, timber, and you're going to extract and take from the land. Theodore Roosevelt in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, and now as president said, I want a biological survey of the West. I want to know everything, every plant, every species, how many kinds of hummingbirds are there in Arizona? How many types of locusts are there in Nebraska? Because we had no guidebooks like that. It was like a frontier for a biologist. And now he's in the White House and he's regularly promoting the books of John Burroughs, the great Hudson River Valley naturalist, who wrote an incredible book called Wake Robin and all of these marvelous naturalist essays and TRs promoting them. But how does one save that many acres? How does a president do this whole national park zeal? Three mechanisms. Uh, One, national parks. All of our national parks have to go through Congress. You've got to pass legislation and get it saved. So TR did that. 
Um, you know, the, he pushed through places like Crater Lake in Oregon and Mesa Verde in Colorado and Wind Cave, South Dakota, on and on. But when stymied, he refused to be stymied. Um, and he creates a whole new category called National Monuments because he finds um, for, in the Antiquities Act of 1906, it's only about a paragraph long, and it was written by John Lacey, who was the general land office head in Washington, D.C. If you were a Western rancher, you would end up going through Lacey's congressional office to get a, a government lease to you know go mine or, or prospect um, or, or timber. And Lacey was able to create a very short little piece of legislation, which was to save dinosaur bones in Native American pottery in spirit. Europeans were looting the American landscape of their Native American artifacts, meaning the best Berlin and Stockholm, and they would come here and just start lifting all of our antiquities. And, um, and dinosaurs were being discovered, you know, all over in the West. So the Antiquities Act basically said that the U.S. federal government, they could put like a plastic along a murder site, you know, or an archaeological dig, and a president has executive authority to declare it a national monument um, as a way to save some of this looting and vandalizing. Well, T.R. takes a hold of that, and when the Senate and Congress would not allow the Grand Canyon to be a national park, Theodore Roosevelt first goes to the Grand Canyon, stands there with the men who served with him, the Rough Riders in the Spanish-American War, and says, do not touch it. God has made it. You'll only mar it. Leave the Grand Canyon alone. And it's still being voted on for mining. So he puts the Antiquities Act to it and ends up saving um, um, 600,000 acres, which was meant for maybe an acre or 16 acres. He says 600,000. And this is called a land grab by the federal government, an illegal gesture. It goes to the court, but it turns out that you're allowed to do it, and TR did it, and he started signing executive orders galore. 48 hours before he leaves the White House, he saves Mount Olympic, uh, Olympus in um, Washington State, Olympic National Park core of the Olympic Park of today. Um, and he would do you know, Redwoods for J- Muir Woods in California, Devil's Tower in Wyoming, on and on. Executive orders on behalf of saving wilderness and wild America. And next, he does, I think, the most important thing of all. He, he, I mentioned 100 years ago, women coming to me tonight would have been wearing a bonnet with an uh, ornamental feather on your cap. <laughs> You may not think you would have, but you would have. You may have had a dead, a dead bird on you, too. And um, Roosevelt's finding through his friends and uh, a Women's Garden Club of America, Museum of Natural History, that these feather mafias were coming and shooting all the birds on their rookeries and then plucking the prettiest feather off the carcass and then, um, and then finding, um, stealing their eggs. And so we were killing species. Animals were going extinct. We had, you know, there once were a billion passenger pigeons that flew across North America. The last one, Martha, died in 1913 in the Cincinnati Zoo. And the last sighting of a passenger pigeon in the wild was taken and written and observed by Theodore Roosevelt in Charlottesville, Virginia. 
but many birds' life were dying. And so TR decides there's an area called near Vero Beach, the Indian River area, if you know Florida at all. And he's finding about the bird slaughtering for women's fashion. And he brings in his staff and a couple of lawyers. And he says, what will stop me from declaring this whole area a bird reservation? And they're like, well, Mr. President, we don't. He said, I so declare it. That is the birthplace of U.S. Fish and Wildlife. That Pelican Island, Florida, is the first of our national wildlife refuges. We now, you all own 550 National Wildlife Refuges. The first is TR. And once he does that with that one in Florida, he saves the offshore islands in Louisiana, the Aleutian chain, you know, Hawaiian islands. The Yukon Delta bird reservation is still there today. It's the size of West Virginia. And this is deeding land to species, you know, all, all across America. And it sets a whole new precedent. Now, T.R. was, um, I could go on and on with stories on him, but he led the conservation movement. He creates over 150 national forests with Gifford Pinchot. Um, It creates the whole idea of a U.S. Forest Service in addition to all of the else I'm talking about. But he leaves the presidency in 1908. Um, You know, he doesn't, he leaves in 19... um, I mean, you know, leaves in 19 after winning and he wins on his own in 1904, but doesn't run again in 08. And TR at that point goes to Africa, goes on a safari there, disappears for a year, hunts, but mainly he's collecting for the Smithsonian Institute um, uh, stories and zoological types of documents, documentation about African species. He comes back. But he splits the Republican Party in two in 1912 when he runs the Progressive Bull Moose Party. I mentioned his identifying with animals. The Bull Moose Party is his party in 1912. As president, he went down to Louisiana and roped a bear, um, and they were going to shoot it, and he let the bear go and for, because it wasn't fair chase to kill a captured bear And a woman in Brooklyn wrote, Dear Mr. President, I'd like to make a toy named after you. And he said, Madam, you're welcome to, but nobody's going to care. Well, that becomes the teddy bear. And it's uh, the most popular toy of all time because it identified. uh, And if you think it's easy to have children running after you with toy bears in politics, uh, William Howard Taft created the Billy Possum toy. And nobody's ever heard of it or seen of it. Nobody wanted a beady-eyed possum. Uh, The point I'm making for you is T.R. identified with species all of his life and with anything in the natural world. He was an obsessive. As president, he would have like 35, 40 pets. Um, The emperor of Ethiopia gave him a pet hyena. He had a, a pet badger that's named Josiah that would run around the White House. And it actually bit somebody a congressperson that he didn't like. And, uh, and it ended up having to um, ship it, the, the Josiah, to his home, and it's buried in the family plot with the family, the baby badger. Um, this is extreme love of creatures in his life. Um, and so now, 1912, he's the Bull Moose Party, Woodrow Wilson, Democrat, former governor of New Jersey, Princeton University president versus William Howard Taft, Republican standard bearer, and T.R. 
has the Bull Moose Party of 12, and he goes to Milwaukee to a World's Fair type of exhibit similar to the one McKinley was killed at in Buffalo, and he gets shot by an assassin, would-be assassin, blood coming out of him, and he comes to the podium and says, it will take more than a bullet to kill a bull moose, and goes on and talks for over an hour. Now, at that point, he's either a, um, he became something bigger than a president. He became a folk hero. He became Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett. He became this sort of legendary figure. But he ends up losing in 1912, coming in second, goes to Brazil and discovers the Brazilian wilderness and writes a wonderful book about it there. Almost dies, bitten by insects, uh, all in the name of, of, of documenting the natural world. He also ends up writing articles in the last days of his life on the uh, rattlesnakes. He took part in a rattlesnake handling ceremony in Arizona. He wrote an essay, a scientific essay on gopher tortoises. And he dies, and he's just turned 60. And his death, nobody was there left to take the conservation banner, environmental banner. Because once he left, every, a lot of people said TR was land environment crazy. And the Republicans of, of, um, of Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge and Herbert Hoover are going to undo TR's massive land saving. Like most of Alaska was put as national forest by, by Theodore Roosevelt, for example. And so it's not a, a big time for conservation but lo and behold, somebody from the Hudson River Valley takes the baton, and that's Franklin D. Roosevelt, his fifth cousin. FDR is uh, born in 1882 up the Hudson in Hyde Park. If you go visit there, he's born in that home, lived his life in that house, and is buried there. That is the home and the presidential library. And for FDR, his special sanctuary, his throw Walden was the Hudson. He would write in letters to people, including Eleanor, the Hudson River is my lifeblood. My life is in the Hudson, in the Hudson River Valley. He knew every nook, every cranny, every species, um, and he adopted everything of Theodore Roosevelt. You want to understand FDR, you got to study Theodore Roosevelt. FDR was state legislator, F, uh, uh, TR state legislator, Albany, FDR state legislator, Albany. Theodore Roosevelt was governor of New York, FDR governor of New York. Theodore Roosevelt, assistant secretary of the Navy, um, FDR assistant secretary of the Navy. Theodore Roosevelt wanted big conservation, big forest, FDR, big Navy, big conservation. Theodore Roosevelt had a, um, a niece named Eleanor Roosevelt, and FDR marries her. Yeah, they're like this. But as, as Theodore Roosevelt loved animal life, the love of FDR trees, you will see, I've seen documents when they write occupation throughout his life, he writes tree farmer. During World War II, all the trees in Europe, Winston Churchill, Queen of the Netherlands, and like they would come from they, Roosevelt's farm. Every year in the New York Times, FDR would take out ads, you know, to have a, while he was president, it would say, have a New Deal Christmas, buy a tree from Roosevelt Farms. Um, he studied with Gifford Pinchot scientific forestry and built along the Hudson a way to rehabilitate the land. 
and the land had been so abused. FDR um, ended up be getting into politics in a time where we had clear-cut our forest, drained our swamps. Um, you know, famously, he, um, as I said, he mimics T.R. lot, but in 1920, he runs as vice president with James Cox of Ohio, and Warren Harding wins. That's just a year after Theodore Roosevelt died, and FDR loses. And he goes back up to Hudson and sits in his house and thinks, well, now I'm jobless. Uh, he had gone to Harvard, and you know, he, he was, had a law degree. He earned at Columbia, but he was really wanted to be a professional forester. And at that point, he says, what, did, what would TR do? And TR had been the progenitor, promoter of the Boy Scouts of America. FDR decides, I'm going to be the head of the New York City Boy Scouts of America, and I want everybody to see the splendors of the Hudson River Valley. And Theodore Roosevelt used to fight forever to protect the Palisades, so today you would have had no development on the New Jersey side of the Hudson. Theodore, uh, TR, FDR knows that that's been done and it's been abused already, but he wants to save the northern part more of the Hudson and gets all of these inner city kids with no money um, broke from Patterson, New Jersey or Long Island and in Brooklyn and gives them a free summer camp at Bear Mountain State Park on the Hudson. Roosevelt raises the money. They all have a big Boy Scout jamboree. They're all doing horseshoes and canoeing and all of this. And this is the summer of 1921. And a bunch of Boy Scouts get polio from dirty water, and so does FDR. He contracts polio from swimming with the Boy Scouts. It doesn't immediately manifest itself, the virus, but a few days after Bear Mountain, he was in Campobello on the New Brunswick main border at a, a place he'd go there. He had put out a forest fire. He was going on these islands and identifying trees. And um, he went to bed with a migraine, had the shakes, and woke up with no feeling on the lower half of his body. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, it becomes like a Florence Nightingale figure. And the person you all know, for we have nothing to fear, but fear itself was an utter terror of losing all control of the lower half of his body, as all of us would be. And he went back to his home in the Hudson, except now nobody wanted to be with Franklin D. Roosevelt because they were afraid you would contract polio even by having him breathe on you, by touching the silverware he touched. So this man who had just in 20 had been the VP candidate for president for the Democrats, didn't have anybody visit him. He sat there with his woodchucks and his bird life, and his only real friend that stayed like this with him was Manswell Crosby, the top ornithologist in New York State, lived in Duchess. And in his darkest moment on the Hudson there, he said, what did TR do when he lost his wife and he lost his mother? He went to the Badlands. Well, I'm going to go to the Everglades of Florida. And FDR disappears into the wilderness of South Florida. And he's going specifically to identify as many Florida birds as he can. And he's doing bird counts and swimming in the waters and trying to heal himself. He gets a, buys a glass-bottom boat in the Everglades. They go back twice with the ornithologist Crosby. And he starts feeling better. 
and buys a resort in Warm Springs, Georgia, to have a forest to replant trees in Georgia that have been clear-cut, modeled on scientific principles of the Hudson, and he buys a resort for polios, as they were called, people that had the same disease. And in the 20s, he was kind of forgotten about. Um, you know, polio-stricken politician, cut down in his prime, too bad. But he ended up being invited by Al Smith to speak at Madison Square Gardens. And he ended up training FDR, not for the oratory, but just to move. He'd put one hand on his son and another he'd use to move his hip in this very hard and painful way. And he'd practice on beams out at, along the Hudson and Hyde Park. And when he got to Madison Square Gardens, every, he got announced and he had to walk from the wing. And he, ref, he forced himself like that and then grabbed the podium and then gave this amazing speech. And the crowd went wild. And we got a, an hour thunderous standing ovation. And the New York Times will say, you know, we'll move over Al Smith. There's a new star, FDR. Seldom does a politician bounce off of a speech like FDR did at Madison Square Gardens. Ronald Reagan did that in 1964 in San Francisco in a way, too. But suddenly now everybody's saying FDR for governor. He runs and wins the governorship in 1928. He wins in 1930. His main, um, it tells you he's president when the Great Depression hits. And his main modus operandi is taking unemployed people and having them build and improve the land, state parks, restock lakes, and replant trees. And out of that pilot project as governor becomes the key plank when he runs for president in 1932, the Civilian Conservation Corps. He gets elected. As you know, on the New Deal program, and the first project of the New Deal, and it's all inspired by FDR, is he starts paying people a dollar a day, if you're unemployed, to work planting trees and helping save national forests and parks and bringing back the wildlife in the, uh, of America. And they ends up from 1933 to 1942, the C.C. Sears, they plant Three billion trees across the United States. And it's, and in addition, he is the real progenitor of the state park movement. The state park movement was born in the 1920s, but as president of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt will save 800 state parks. 800 in our country were created by Franklin D. Roosevelt. And then he took that National that Antiquities Act that Theodore Roosevelt devised and started saving it at all sorts of places. He saved places as his president using that, places like the Great Smoky Mountains is FDRs, the Everglades, the Channel Islands of California off of Santa Barbara, Joshua Tree in, in um, California. Um, you know, there's backstory, Mammoth Cave, Isle Royal. At the whole grid of our federal park systems and forests and state parks are because of these two Roosevelts that loved America so much that it meant loving the rivers and the lakes and the lands. And FDR would have WPA guides made of, of counties and of rivers to people to understand their natural heritage, that this was a gift for all of us to protect the bounty of this land. 
Um, so much so was he saved species like TR2. A woman here in New York named Rosalie Edge wrote FDR right on the eve of Pearl Harbor about the trumpeter swan being molested in uh, Henry's Lake, Idaho, near Yellowstone. It was a wintering spot for these magnificent swans because they wouldn't freeze. They didn't migrate to the Gulf. They would stay there. But the U.S. Army 10th Mountain Division had created artillery kind of exercises and alpine exercises, and they're scaring the swans were going helter-skelter from the noise and fear, and that she wrote that these, they're going to, there's a possibility the species will go extinct. Nothing Roosevelt's hate more than extinct species. Um, and, you know, any normal president would ignore a letter like this at the eve of Pearl Harbor. FDR writes her back, which I thought was reasonable enough. I'll, uh, thank you, ma'am. I'll look into this. Then he writes Henry Stimson. He does research and writes Secretary of War. All right, uh, um, Henry, I've looked into the war going on between the U.S. Army and the Trumpeters. And I, I, I I'm looked into it very carefully, and I'm on side of the Trumpeters. The U.S. Army must denest. He booted the 10th Mountain Division headquarters, which cost taxpayers $25 million. And they move it to Camp Hale, Colorado, because FDR doesn't want the Trumpeter swans to be disturbed. Why would he do that? It's because FDR is telling the Army, he's telling every department, he did this in, in New York State over and over again too, these federal lands are here for the ages. Do you, just because there's war here, we are fighting democracy and democracy is our parklands, is our natural heritage. That is what it means to be an American our wilderness values, our outdoor values, and we're not cashing them in just because we're fighting the Second World War. And um, he ends up, um, during the war years, you know, it's extraordinary interest he continues to take in creating national parks. There's one great scene when he's up in Washington State and he sees a forest and he looks at it and screams in front of the press, who clear-cut this hill? Who clear-cut the hill? And, uh, you know, they finally get an answer. And he says, well, I hope they rot in hell. And he then pushes to get the whole forest saved up in Washington uh, State. Uh, places like Big Bend National Park. You know what date Big Bend in Texas on the Rio Grande was saved? June 6, 1944. On the day before D-Day, FDR was in Charlottesville bird watching with Pa Watson not far from where TR's Pine Knot cabin was, where TR would go bird watching, And um, he didn't want the press to detect him, and he showed up in, and gave the D-Day address on radio and spent the rest of the afternoon looking at maps on where visitor centers and things should be at Big Bend National Park uh, with Eamon Carter of Fort Worth, and, and, and he just refused to cancel it. And then, shortly after D-Day, writes the president of Mexico, well, let's create a big national park along the Rio Grande River because it's really one ecosystem and that, that we can end up have a jointly shared park by our two countries. And that's the land where the wall's going up now along the border there. Roosevelt was looking to find a way to deal with the border in a, in a kind of ecologically sane way. Um, and, and this continues so much so that at the last year of his life, Last late 1944, he writes um, Gifford Pinchot, 
who's had heart attacks, FTR's former chief forester, and says to Pinchot, I'm creating the United Nations, and I want our number one thing to be that conservation, global conservation, is the means for permanent peace. That's FDR's slogan. And they start working to go to do it. Well, by January, a time of Yalta, January and February 45, FDR is getting a little feeble, and some people in government aren't listening to him. And he writes a fiery note to Edward Stettenis and, um, and our, the new Secretary of State, you know, of the goddammit variety. I said that this is, they, people in state did not think it was wise to make conservation part of the UN. And FDR said, I want it to be the main thing that countries have to have global, what we would call environmental laws of today. Um, and there are letters he's writing during the war. He went to Tehran conference and then writes like uh, um, the um, the king of um, Saudi Arabia, um, I, you have a forestry problem and I'm going to help you with it and I'll do it pro bono. He would write world leaders giving advice on how to land manage. Do you realize that during World War II, when we're America's in the world, that he disappeared for like 27 days to go to the Galapagos Islands to follow in Darwin's footsteps, FDR. And he'd said, TR would have gone looking for large mammals, but I'm going, they, I'm going to look for the smallest fish in the world. And they did. They found um, new fish. He went with the Smithsonian to the Galapagos. Um, and they started, say, at that point, that's when he saved the Channel Islands as being America's um, Galapagos. You can see what, Darwin, what nature, what the natural world order, and what preservation means to, meant to these two. When he dies the, um, in Warm Springs, Georgia, FDR, uh, and his body's moved here to the Hudson River and buried at his birthplace, um, Harold Ickes, the, the number most activist Secretary of Interior in U.S. history, um, says, we got to do something big for nature for FDR, he would not like just a, a kind of military kind of funeral service along the Hudson. And so when the UN gets created in San Francisco, all of the delegates before it opens charter, they take vehicles and take them into the Redwood Grove of um, named after John Muir, the great naturalist, Muir Woods. And in deep into that Redwood Grove, they all do a ceremony to honor the person who loved trees. Um, that wanted things to grow. Um, if there was a difference, uh, if they both believed that anytime you cut a tree, you plant three more, Any, that you never shoot an animal out till, to the point of extinction, that you judged a person's character by the way they were a steward of their land and property, that our country had to follow the Hudson River beautification of the famous painters and have a American beautification movement where every urban place was pretty and that we did what they would plant in World War II victory gardens on buildings and greening of America. Um, and this is what both of them, um, of, of their natural heritage that have been left with us. When you write in the annals of conservation in the United States and rank presidents, it's Theodore Roosevelt and FDR and everybody else way, way after them. It's, we are very blessed that we had two visionaries that understood protected landscapes. And here in New York, they're both New Yorkers. Theodore Roosevelt's great love was Long Island, Oyster Bay, 
his home Sagamore Hill, and FDR's was the Hudson River Valley, and they both worked to make New York um, stay as as special as it is. For FDR, and I'm going to take the questions, always remember he was not a New York City politician. Everybody in the country says, he's from New York, New York governor, oh, they're all the same, New Yorkers. He was from upstate, Dutchess County. So he spent his life in politics telling New York Manhattan people, come on up the Hudson. Come camp. Come, you know, he built the Taconic State Parkway as a scenic parkway, just like he did with the Skyline Drive Parkway. And they're also, um, FDR um, did the first wilderness areas, meaning land without roads, when they, they saved he was inspired by Ansel Adams' photographs, FDR, to save Kings Canyon National Park in California. Eleanor Roosevelt, the third Roosevelt that's part of all of this, uh, and she'll get the last word, um, used to tell um, anybody wanting to save anywhere in America, any environmentalist, get a bunch of photos and just get a two-minute meeting with Franklin, and he'll say Yes. And so all, Eleanor would get all these people, and he'd go, oh, that's beautiful. Look at this. Well, let's save it. Yes. And the, uh, the last story in that regard is in California, the Joshua Tree. Uh, um, Mervana Hamilton Hoyt ran the Rose Bowl parades in Pasadena. She was a horticulturalist. And she decided that those gro- what some people thought were grotesque Joshua trees out there, uh, um, I hope you know what they look like, but uh, they're an unusual desert fauna. Uh, that needed to be protected. And so she, Eleanor, told her to put photos of that area. She took it, uh, took a million acres of, of plant life in a million acre desert area, got her few minutes with FDR. He looked at it and said, just like Tier, I so declare, you got it. Call it Joshua Tree National Monument. She goes, says, no, Mr. President, there's like railroads have leases and there are these still mining claims and it's a little more complicated. He said, oh, that's what lawyers are for. I just did this. We're done. That's great. She went out stunned and it didn't become a million. It became 800,000 once the lawyers were done with it. But and, and this was the atmosphere that they both rushed to to save places um, in the United States, particularly in the West, but also on the East. FDR's favorite place when he went was the Smoky Mountains when that got established in 1934. And think how how much less the Eastern uh, Coast would be if we didn't have the Smokies and Shenandoah and and parts of the Adirondacks saved. And we uh, we owe an awful lot to those two presidents. Thank you. Thank you. All right, first question. What role did John Muir play in Teddy Roosevelt's life? John Muir is the co-founder of the Sierra Club, was a big believer in national parks in the 1890s and in the early 20th century when um, T.R. is enamored with Muir's writings. And so he goes to California and they go to Yosemite together and have a jolly old time. They sleep out under the stars. It snows on Muir and T.R. And out of that one night, Muir had a political objective to save Mount Shasta in California um, as a national forest to be protected. And um, 
Roosevelt that night agrees and he leaves and does a telegram. I want the whole Mount Shasta saved after one night with John Muir. You could see why environmentalists wanted to get near these guys, you know, this is, they, uh, and, and um, Muir is, but the person that Theodore Roosevelt most loved is uh, John Burroughs here from New York. And he, if you get a chance, he has a, in a Sopus, New York on the Hudson, there's a place called Slab Sides, which is the rustic home and cabin of John Burroughs. And um, he's just deeply underappreciated. Muir got lucky, or not lucky, he earned it. I mean, but he created the Sierra Club, which lives on, where Burroughs, as a backyard naturalist, never created an institution. You get, we give the Burroughs Medal for the best book on the environment and all this, but Muir, uh, Burroughs in his day was lyrical about the writing about New York State. Um, this one's from Lincoln to Teddy Roosevelt to Nixon. Environmental conservation was an important part of the Republican ideology. When did that change, and why does it seem that though the environmental conservation movement is under attack by contemporary leaders on the right? Great, great question. It did used to be bipartisan, um, as you mentioned. I mean, Richard Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency. Nixon pushed through and signed endangered species law and clean air and water acts um, reluctantly. Nixon did. It was, he was worried about Ed Muskie winning in 1972, getting the Democratic nomination. And we had just had the first um, Earth Day and all of this going on. And so Nixon thought he would had to be environmental president. Um, it changed, guys. When I go to groups and if I talk around the country, if I go, let's say, to what we call a red area, Republican county or city, Obviously, no audience is pure like that, or, or most aren't, but a largely conservative audience. If I talk about saving, like if it's in Ohio, and I talk about saving Lake Erie, let's bring the fish back, let's clean up the lake, everybody's with me. The second I say the word environmental, people back away. It, they think on the conservatives that environmental means like the tree hugging left, and that now you're on you're on a political agenda, um, and and so the language is really important. Wilderness has more people don't have a, a allergy to the word saving wild, wild places and wilderness, but environmentalism has become like this term, um, you know, and uh, it's unfortunate. But beyond that, money into campaign politics it's all lobby groups now so the environmental lobbyists and democrats so republicans say i'm not going to help it um but there are some lamar alexander of tennessee's republican um conservationist um but i i agree with you it's a pity that these is not a bipartisan endeavor anymore maybe someday it will be again um this is what role if any did eleanor roosevelt take in conservation um, she wrote her My Day columns, and most of them are beautifully pa- a pastoral living. Um, keep in mind, Theodore Roosevelt wrote nonstop about the natural world. He wrote, that was his main bread and butter, was writing about nature, uh, and FDR did not write. So that's why FDR's legacy in environmentalism is less known, because he wasn't writing all the time. Eleanor Roosevelt wrote constantly about all the places she went and would write little lyrical passages about the natural beauty. Um, But um, she also was under the spell of the Hudson River, and she has her own home, Valkill, 
that you can go visit um, where they would make um, local furniture. And remember, right where the Roosevelt's are on the Hudson is sort of not that far from Woodstock and New Paltz. And there were a lot of fisher folk and loggers. And, and you know, it's a natural world environment up there, um, um, and, and particularly back in those days. Um, but she didn't have the ardor of Franklin, um, you know, they, in, in particularly with bird watching that he did, he would go as president bird watching all the time, um, and would go always be trying to hook up with top ornithologists to um, keep his Audubon checklist. But Eleanor Roosevelt's big passion was the Audubon societies, particularly like she'd go to Greenwich, Connecticut's Audubon Society, and how Audubon can do things on a local level to teach about the natural world to young people. And some of her writings predate what we call nature deficit disorder that we have today of young people, like nobody knows the tree in their yard or what kind of flower, what kind of grass. And, um, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt was bemoaning the fact that we were starting to discommune with the land. Of the presidents who have served on the past 40 years from Reagan to Trump, who do you think is the, has the conservation traditions of Teddy and Franklin Roosevelt? Uh, Jimmy Carter was a conservationist. Um, he saved in a 1980 with the Alaska Lands Act as much land as the state of California. Um, he goes fly fishing all the time and approaches life like William O. Douglas, the Supreme Court um, uh, Justice, who was a great conservationist. Life had, from a view of a fly fisherman oftentimes. But um, you look at the interior departments, the only one that was exceptional after, um, after of this period is Cecil Andrus, the from, former governor of Idaho, who was Jimmy Carter's interior secretary. They caught the tailwind of the long 60s and were able to do quite a bit. Barack Obama had a very good presidency on conservation uh, with um, Ken Salazar at Interior, and then Sally Jewell as Interior. Um, and they saved many iconic places um, this late in the 21st century, the San Juan Islands up in Washington State, um, and the um, uh, 1.7 million of the Nevada desert. But Obama's Interior got interested in opening up the net of history. And so they would save national park sites for history, like Stonewall here in New York for LGBTQ people, Cesar Chavez's home in California, um, and um, uh, Harriet Tubman's home, um, the Buffalo Soldier Monument site. They were trying to open up the narrative and maybe end with this Bears Ear in Utah. The state of Utah, FDR create, saved, took Little Arches National Park, quadrupled it, created Capitol Reefs National Park. Um, they were building linkage to all these Utah, you know, uh, parks. Obama did the last piece of it with Bears Ears, um, which is run by five Native American tribes. But the Trump administration is trying to uh, shrink the size of it as we speak right now. It's being challenged in the courts. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, Follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.